Hello. Uh, Bible readings from the book of Luke, the, the sixth chapter, from verse 1 to verse uh, 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick heads, some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and, he, and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This is me before I wake up. morning tea time. (laughs) And I've come to discover over many years I have terrible rhythm. And I wonder if you're any better. I've got a lot going on. I suspect you've got a lot going on in your life. And so what are you going to do about it? I don't want to waste your precious time tonight by trying to convince you of the problem that our culture has with frenetic pace, with ceaseless activity with the need to go and do more and be more and achieve and accomplish and to be the people that make it happen, to be in the now and don't stop me now. Don't stop me because I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time and I'm exhausted. Aren't you? Just a little bit. We're busy, busy people. There's no sign of it slowing down anytime soon. Despite the promises of labour-saving devices and shorter working weeks... The cadence of your life is steadily increasing. And so for a moment, if you've got the time, ask yourself the question, why is it like that? Why all the pace? Why the endless doing? And what's that saying about us as human beings? I mean, especially in the Western culture, uh, that, that we behave like this. Why couldn't it be otherwise? See, we take no winter-long hibernation. How good does that sound? There's no transformational cocoon experience. Oh, I long for that. 
our culture won't even adopt the idea of siesta, right? How stupid could we be? Other people have worked that out in other cultures. But here's the thing. This isn't a scheduling problem. It's not an inability to prioritize the important and the urgent. This is because we live now in a, sorry, this isn't because we live now in a rapid and complex world that's transmitting and processing data at nanosecond speeds and the rest of it, and so you better keep up. And it's not because there's no rest for the wicked either. This busy thing that you've got going on and I've got going on is a heart problem before it's anything else. So let's talk about our hearts and why we find it hard to stop and to slow down and to rest sometimes. And and when I'm talking about our hearts, I'm talking about our desires, the things we long for, our longings. And it's really about the way that I see myself and the way I want you to see me. It's about my identity and your identity. And my identity, well, it's who I say I am, isn't it? It's who I am. It's who I am. I'm charging Not for sleeping, I am who I say I am. You better be for me, not against me, I am who I say I am. And and there's a lot that goes into that identity formation project that we're all pouring ourselves into. And when you strip it back and think about what is being poured into this, what am I giving of myself, you realise it's a lot of pride. A lot of ourselves wanting to look good and present well. And pride, not surprisingly, sits under so many of the things that rob us, rob us of the life to the full that we are meant to enjoy. So just give me a few minutes and, and see if this summary that I've stolen from Kevin DeYoung and his book, Crazy Busy, and see if it has any resonance. I stole it because it was too much hard work to think this up myself. Now, his basic premise is that we're busy and we won't rest because of pride. And then he goes on to explain the many ways or the many forms and faces that pride has in our life and the way it cracks the whip to get, to get you running. And so he lists it off and says it really is about your identity and there is no rest for the proud because of uh, your people-pleasing. We do too many things because we say yes to too many people. We say yes to too many people because we want them to like us and we fear their disapproval. Why is that pride? Because the thing that is motivating us is not that we love others, but that we want others to love us or at least think nice things about us. And the truth is, living and dying on the, pro- the approval of others is miserable. And, and never saying no keeps loading up your life and chewing up your margins, if you ever had any. But it's not just people-pleasing. He says, what about the pats on the back, where you're living for the praise? You're not motivated here by fear, but for the desire for glory. (laughs) Look how much I do. Or the performance evaluation, that we overstate our importance because the world needs me and no one does it better than me, and so I better just keep on keeping on. But the truth is... You're only indispensable until you start saying no. But what about your possessions? We work to earn and we earn to spend and we stay busy because we want more stuff. And in a world of planned obsolescence, you'll need more stuff because the stuff that you've got is so last season. And proving myself. 
Some of us never rest because we're still trying to prove something to someone, to our parents or to some Bible college principal, or maybe I'm just talking about myself, but we'll prove ourselves in different ways. And then there's the pity that as people might feel sorry for us because we are so busy. Oh, you poor thing, you are so busy. And then there's the poor planning, too proud to let others step in and carry the load, and so overwhelmed that you pile more on just to keep up appearances. And what about the power that I need to stay busy because I need to stay in control? And perfectionism, I can't let up because I can't make a mistake. And the position, because people in my positions just are supposed to work this hard and do like this. And what about the prestige? If I keep pushing myself, finally I'll be somebody. And what about all my posting? I'm relentlessly blogging and tweeting and cataloguing my doing because I want you to see me and I keep up all my streaks just to show that I'm still in existence in some kind of way. Now I know that some of the stuff in that list might not be pride at all, it's just doing life, it's living, it's genuinely good things to do but how do you detect your motivation and whether or not pride is eating away at your life and motivating you and forming your identity? Well, here's a good question to ask. Am I trying to do good or to make myself look good? And here's the big point in all of this. This kind of identity formation project that many of us are on and is exhausting you never, ever ends. If you believe that your identity is defined by what you do, You'll never have done enough. Not ever. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, we are robbed of rest. And being able to say, enough, that'll do, donkey, that'll do, (laughs) eludes us. And we feel it. And we know it, don't we? And if you didn't know this, in fact, uh, it's actually a theological reason why it's like this. It's because you weren't meant to live such restless lives. Now, Now, I know that you know that you need sleep, and I'm not talking really about that. I'm saying something more than just the sleep that you get. I'm talking about those waking times when you're not doing. You've heard of those times, haven't you? I'm talking about real rest, about the tools being put down and the laptop closing, the uniform being removed and the studying being suspended, the washing left, and I'm talking about work ending. Just for a moment, even for a day. I'm talking about what the Hebrews were taught two millennia before Christ to call Shabbat. And the word means to cease. We call it Sabbath. And for some of us, it's a practice that we don't think has any relevance at all. Sometimes just because we've never thought about it, we've never been taught about it. And some of us will say that it's of no real relevance anymore because of what Christ has done and his finished work, the rest that we have entered into permanently. And so if we've entered in permanently into his rest, you don't need to symbolise that Uh, what we've been given for all time, once and for all. Um, In fact, I'll just live that out every day of my life. But we never rest. And so you'll hear passages like the one that was read for us from Luke chapter 6 earlier on and see that Jesus and his disciples seem to have a disregard for the Sabbath. And so why shouldn't we? 
But is that what's going on? And is that the way that we're meant to think about all of this? You see, what is Sabbath in this idea of waking rest meant to be about? Well, if you want to trace the theology of the Sabbath, you need to go back very close to the very beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And there it is. Right at the very beginning, this pattern established. And then when you jump ahead, one book, to the book of Exodus, and you come to Exodus chapter 20, we see that what God has established back in Genesis 2 as a creation ordinance, that is a pattern of his mode of operating, he now, following on from the fall and with the backdrop of human sinfulness, he includes the Sabbath as part of his moral law. And so within the Ten Commandments that he gives to His people, he says this in verse 8 of Exodus. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Why? Well, because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number four. Now, if you were to keep reading, uh, the next thing in that same list is that you're told to honour your father and your mother. And then you're commanded not to murder, not to commit adultery, Then comes stealing and telling lies, and the last on the list is about coveting. What should you notice about all of that? Is that the fourth commandment? Comes after the first three, all directed about our relationship with God, and then there's this transition through the Sabbath and this day that God has ascribed, and to its working out through five and the rest. It's right there in the middle. And if you want to disregard that, then perhaps you want to disregard all of that? Hold that thought and jump to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and now you're with Moses. And the people of Israel are on the outskirts of the promised land. They're about to enter into their rest. And Moses goes through the whole Ten Commandments. In fact, he goes through a heap more. But I don't want to bore you with the repetition of what Moses does. But when he goes back through the commandments, he includes an interesting addition in verse 15. God's people are told to remember the Sabbath and remember that they were slaves under bondage and the Lord rescued them. So, See, not only are they to remember that God worked in creation and then ended his work and rested the creation ordinance. Here you discover that this remembrance of God's mighty work of redeeming them, of bringing them out of slavery and into the promised land, this work of redemption is God's mighty work for his people and he has laboured to set them free and now they are free indeed to enter into a land that is their promised inherited rest. It's a nice little pattern. Slaves who are now set free and they did nothing but follow God who led them out and worked for them 
And then you come to a people who are in exile many centuries later in the book of Isaiah. And we'll just look at this one more thing before we return to Jesus and hear what he has to say about the Sabbath. Because in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13, the people who are living in Babylon under foreign rule are told this, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find joy in the Lord and I'll cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To, to the people living in exile comes this instruction that irrespective of the culture around you, delight in the Sabbath and be blessed in the practising of it. Now, what are we to make of all of that? Well, just think about the, the creation aspect for a moment longer. Have you ever wondered why God's word records him taking six days to create? He didn't need to take that long. He could have knocked it out in an afternoon, couldn't he? He creates out of nothing. He could have also spread it out over a much longer period of time. Here's this God who can take ex nihilo, nothing at all, and make it to be instantaneously. And yet he determined to take six days to do that work. Have you ever wondered why he rested on the seventh day? He was flogged, wasn't he? Well, no, no, it wasn't because he's wrecked and tired. We know of God that he neither sleeps nor slumbers, that he doesn't get fatigued. But we're told, not that he rested from everything, but that he rested from his work of creation. The job was done, the tools are down, it is time to rest. And by doing this, he establishes a pattern for life, the life of the creatures that he's made in his own image whereby a pattern is established where you work for six and you rest for one. And he gives the humanity that he's created a week. Actually, I wonder if you've, if you've thought about this. Daniel introduced me to this thought and it's been buzzing in my head for about two weeks. The earth goes round one revolution of its axis and then there is a, right? It's a day. Okay, you can, let's see how you go with the next one. Goodness gracious. <laughs> because the moon goes round one revolution of the earth, there is a month, more or less. Because the earth goes one revolution round the sun, there is a year. That's right. And so what is the thing that happens? So there is a week. blew my mind. Nothing. Actually, that's not, the, that's not quite right, is it? What is the thing that happened so there is a week? Is that God happened. He thought this structure up. It's his. That's why we have it. He did something and he determined to do it in a week. Six days of work and one day he rested. And it is no small thing that the pattern of creation that God has ordered his work then forms the instruction that he gives to humanity to observe. 
He says, it's a pattern in my creation. It's a pattern in my moral law to observe. It's a pattern of redemption even. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And so way before the fall, or at least moments before the fall, in the beauty of Eden, here is good work to be done and here is rest to be enjoyed. And the fall happens and what begins as a creation pattern becomes divine command number four. It's not about perfume. So let me ask you, what part of your life is embracing this pattern? My answer, regrettably, is not so much. Not not with the kind of rhythm and the kind of cadence that it's meant to. And maybe you've got excuses. I mean, there's a whole lot of excuses as to why you're not going to observe the status. Because it's legalism, isn't it? I mean, here's a rule and you're going to form it and you're going to tell me you're going to have to stop it and just what, do what? On, well, is that, is that the problem? That, that you see it as legalism? Well, take your mind to the two stories that Luke records for us about Jesus and his behaviour on the Sabbath, back in Luke chapter 6. We're told that on, on, on one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields And he's there with his disciples. It's a Sabbath. It's a great day. There's no work. And you're meant to kind of read that and think, hey, this is a nice time. Here they are out for a walk. They're wandering. Lovely. What are they doing? They're picking some heads of grain. And they're rubbing in their hands and they're eating the kernels. I had to convince Kieran that that's not a reference to KFC. It's that they're getting the grain off the stalk. They rub it together and they just feed right then and there. And it's just delicious. And you're meant to look at that scene and say, how delightful. Maybe you can hear them laughing in your mind's ear. A picnic on the go. One of them's running and say, go along. And, they, look, and they're eating it. Thomas, well done. And it's just a joyous time. And then all of a sudden, first two, some of the Pharisees are. And you're like, what were they doing there? Hello. I'm just wondering, you know. <laughs> but there they are. Pop their heads around the corner. And what do they have to say? What you're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. Here's the legal argument. Unlawful. Why? Because under Sabbath rule, it's, it's illegal, it's unlawful to harvest. You can't take the sickle to the grain and go through the... You can't whack out the combine harvester and... You know, do, that's, that's work, fair enough. And then the winnowing, where you chuck it up in the air and the wind blows away the chaff and you end up with the grain. Well, you can't do that either. That's work. And what they're doing, picking and rubbing... The Pharisees are saying that's harvesting and that's winnowing and that's unlawful. And so they've just extended out the parameters of what work is to say even the joyous activity of these guys going through the field and enjoying the kernels, right? Unlawful. And then Jesus answers them in verse 3. Have you never read? He reminds them of an episode in the life of David where David and his companions are hungry on the Sabbath. And what do they do? They enter the house of God and taking the consecrated bread and they ate what was unlawful and only lawful for priests to eat. Give some to his companions. And all of that's fine. And Jesus is saying, do you realise that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? You say you've ordered it, I want to tell you you've got your priorities and your order wrong. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is actually pointing out the legalism of the Pharisees and their abuses of the Sabbath, not the uses of it. He's not removing the value of the fourth commandment, but he is saying if you want to make a list of rules and regulations that stifle people and exhaust them, 
You're exhausting the Sabbath. It's not what it was made for. It was meant to be refreshing. It was meant to give you rest. It was meant to be worship. And what have you made it? In the very next scene, it's another Sabbath day again, and the Pharisees, they're on the lookout here too. They're in the synagogue, and they want to see, will Jesus do that work of healing? Will he do that on the Sabbath? Because that's a hard work. And there's a man there, and he's got a shriveled hand. And Jesus knows what the Pharisees are thinking, and so he gets to work in verse 8. And he says to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. Imagine you're that man. You think, I just came to the synagogue. Just on the Sabbath. Do you really do I have to stand up in front of everyone? It's hard enough that I have to kind of hide this thing away as it is. And... But he gets up. And then in front of the crowd, Jesus asks, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Have you got your lists? Do you know what's on the list? Can you tell me what's lawful on the Sabbath? Yes, yes, we know. Is it to do good or do evil? Is it to save life or to destroy it? And you hear no answer from them. But Jesus looks around at them all. They're caught in their hypocrisy. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. When you go to Matthew's telling of this incident, we're told that they plotted to kill Jesus. So apparently, you can't heal on the Sabbath, but you can work up your assassination strategy. That's fine. (laughs) And Jesus highlights the hypocrisy. To the legalist, he says, the Sabbath is there to do good. It's to take the shriveled and restore your shriveled existence. Be restored that there might be life and invigoration and movement and healing. See, it's clear why Jesus says that the Sabbath is for humanity and not the other way around. The Sabbath is an opportunity to rest from the pressure of the world to constantly accomplish, to earn and to solve and to spend and to do. It's a day to step back, as God himself did on the seventh day, and enjoy the fruit of our labour. And if you say, no, 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 I don't like the legalism, don't you want that? Isn't that a great gift? It's a day to look at our life and our work and the finished work of Jesus on the cross and to say with great contentment, that'll do, that'll do, it's enough. And this is because as Christians, we know that neither our work nor any other thing that we fill our life with, any other counterfeit God can satisfy or save that Jesus Christ is the only one who truly gives rest and brings salvation. Salvation that the the world so desperately desires. And when we rest... When we keep the Sabbath, we're saying to ourselves and to the watching world that while we really could probably squeeze in one more day of productivity and get some more profit and a bit more performance, we don't need to or want to. We're okay. We're okay even in ourselves because we know whose we are and who he says we are. We're satisfied. 
Because it's not our work that is saving us. It's something else. Well, it's someone else. If nothing else, tonight is an opportunity to see this idea of rest, ceasing, Sabbath, as a gift. In a world where we have to, we're given the Sabbath where we get to. We get to sit down. We get to breathe. Tim Keller says the purpose of the Sabbath is not simply to rejuvenate yourself in order to be more productive, in order to do more production, nor is it the pursuit of pleasure. The purpose of the Sabbath is to enjoy your God, life in general, and what you have accomplished in the world through his help, and the freedom you have in the gospel, the freedom from slavery to any material object or human expectation. Doesn't rest and Sabbath sound lovely? Don't you want that kind of cadence and that kind of rhythm? So what does it look like? What's the practice? Well, I think we've been given some hints already. The first part is to remember it. So many times throughout Scripture it says, remember the Sabbath. It's the command to remember it, actually. Because we're prone to forget it. Remember your work and your life and how you're setting up your calendar and your structures. And will you set aside... A day when you're physically recharging. And maybe a day is too big. It's too big a shift right now. So just take a portion perhaps and work up. But remember, because there's a good chance you've forgotten already. And also remember that it's a holy thing. That the Sabbath is a day that's set aside to be holy. And that holiness has to do with the God who's given you this day. It's a day where there ought to be significant worship happening on it. When you're gathering, typically Christians have gathered on the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday, that we might gather and corporately in community worship together, celebrating together and refreshing ourselves together, drawing strength from God's Word and His Spirit together. There's something about the holiness of that day. It doesn't need to take that form of corporate worship but it's a great pattern and a great practice but notice that it's a practice and not a rule and that that practice of a life that's living in that kind of cadence working and resting is lovely Walter Brueggemann says uh, people who observe the Sabbath live all seven days differently see we're saying that there ought to be something special about the time that we take to rest. Something that's different about that day from the other days because Jesus Christ is our Lord and we're not. And my identity is found in Him and that He is risen and reigning and ruling and I'm not. And He doesn't need me to be on duty all of the time. I can rest. And so it will be good to, well, restrain and stop. And probably restrain some of the secular stuff that we pile into our lives, the stuff of this world. To not fill a day of rest with shopping and prepping for the week to come. That the thought of going digital free for a day and rest. That I could take a day and use a portion of it to pour into relationships for part of that time. A day where I might delight and feast and enjoy 
where I might walk and reflect and just wander a bit and breathe and be mindful to the beauty and all of the many graces of God to me and to you. But it won't be about laying down rules because Sabbath is a gift to us. And I really just want to encourage you to find a way that says in your activity to the Lord, I love you and I am so thankful for this life. I want to trust you in a special way by surrendering on this day. Let me tell you a helpful way to start. A number of us have been listening to a podcast series that John Mark Combe has put together. And uh, my apologies for the screen, by the way, being out of sync, but it's enough to see. This podcast is called Rest for Your Soul. We'll probably send a link out tomorrow on the e-news. It's an hour long, but just a great way to think about Sabbath and a bunch of different practices and ways of thinking about it. And there's a whole lot of stuff that John Mark Combe has done in this area that I think is really helpful. In fact, the next book that I'm going to read um, on my holiday, because <laughs> that feels like not work, is called Garden City that he's written. I was actually thinking we put a book club together, we could read through it, we could sit down and have a discussion, but forget that, that's way too much hard work. And so in your own time, if you want to, if you don't, just at your own leisure. In fact, in God's time and the leisure that God gives you, um, yeah, I want to just recommend uh, his thoughts and his work on this. We'll send some links out for that tomorrow. But where will you, in in the busyness of your life, find rest? This jacket was meant to symbolise anything. It was this idea that uh, we work. This was my jacket. And I used to wear to work and every wedding and everything else. And uh, it's so last season. Double-breasted. But as you think about your rest, where will you find it? On Tuesday night, I went to a musical concert night at Pittwater High School. It was a great night. Sam Femia's daughter, Elisheba, played a piece by Rachmaninoff. She did incredibly well, Sam. Remarkable, astonishing. Rachmaninoff is famous for his complexity. I just uh, took a screenshot. <laughs> he likes notes, lots and lots of them. Yeah, the complexity of his compa- com- compositions, well known. But look at that. Does that feel like your life? Does that feel like rest? Like, is, you know, in the midst of the <clears throat> all of that. But, but I want to. I just want to focus on one thing. There it is. It's very small on the screen. I, I blew it up. I don't read music, I had to ask what that thing was. Do you know what that is? It's a rest. Oh, it's a rest. In the midst of all of that, I found, I actually found a few other ones, I think there's three on that whole page, right? But it's a crotchet rest. Quaver rest. It's worse, it's worse than that. I actually had to, I actually asked my wife just before I got up, Heidi, which one's which? So, crotchet rest, quarter rest, quaver rest, an eighth of a rest. In the whole beat, I just get, just that, that's it. But it's worse than that. You look at Rachmaninoff, right? And, and, and it's only your left hand that's resting. Your other one's still going on. It's nuts. It's crazy. Look at that. What I'm longing for and what you're looking for. Am I right? Is a whole rest. 
time where I can rest, finally, rest. And here's the good news. It's the good news that's in the gospel. And perhaps the place where you see this most clearly is in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, verse 13, it speaks of that day. And it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour. That this life that we have, the frenetic pace, will one day come to an end. There is an eternity to enjoy. And there is rest from labour in that place. But not only is that true, this movement from the work, to this is becoming my favourite image at the moment. is that even in this life is the opportunity to rest. And it feels so different. It feels phenomenal. I was given this several years ago. I pulled it out of my wardrobe this morning. You can ask my family. That's true. Because, you know, the the truth is, We have rest, not only in the future, but we have rest now in Christ. And that's another entire sermon from Hebrews chapter 4. But what is true, come our death or Christ's return, that those who are in the Lord will rest. It is also true that in this life now, we're meant to echo that truth, that the rest that we have received already in Christ, and the rest that we reach forward to and is evidencing the reach that we will one day have, we own today. And and so today, in Christ alone, I recognise that my hope and my identity is found. He is my light and my strength and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, What height of love, what depth of peace, when fears are stilled and when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand and do nothing. Just trusting him, And that's enough, at least for a little while. I'll get back to work soon enough. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you hear our prayer? Our prayer that we might not reject what you have given to us as a great gift. We think of your pattern in creation. We think of the work of redemption. You take us from slavery and set us free. You place a moral law behind us and embed in the midst of it a command to remember a day that we might set aside, we might draw strength from you, dwell with you and love all that you have poured into our lives. Lord, may we take hold of the blessing of rest and Lord, would we let go of the relentlessness, of the pace and the activity that we think defines us and find our true identity in Christ alone. Amen.